0: Like the office they commemorate,
1: presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly, it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future.
2: Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this week's Reagan Forum podcast, we go back just one week to March 23rd, 2023, for our private evening program to commemorate the opening of our special exhibition, Auschwitz, Not Long Ago, Not Far Away, which opened to the public Friday, March 24, 2023. The West Coast debut of the 12,500 square foot exhibition is the first of three final North American stops. Each special exhibition the Reagan Library hosts is intended to remind Americans about important moments in time, but this exhibit is particularly powerful. To echo the sentiment of President Reagan, we must ensure that the horrors of the Holocaust are not lost on this generation or any future generation. Created by Spanish company Musealia, together with the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum in Poland, and now being toured through North America by World Heritage Exhibitions, the exhibit displays the largest and most comprehensive collection of artifacts linked to the history of this German-Nazi concentration and extermination camp. They come mainly from the Auschwitz Memorial and Museum, as well as over 20 institutions, museums, and private collections around the world. Artifacts include concrete posts that were part of the fence of the Auschwitz-Birkenau camp, fragments of an original prisoner's barrack from the Auschwitz-Monowitz camp, a gas mask used by the SS, as well as a German-made World War II-era Model 2 II train car, the same model used to transport Jews to camps and ghettos. As the director of Muselia once said, we realize that not everyone can travel to Auschwitz to see this important piece of history, so we are bringing Auschwitz to the world. Visitors will learn a moment of history that this world can never afford to repeat. For the evening's program, CNN's Wolf Blitzer served as MC. Speakers included the director of Muselia and the creator of the Auschwitz exhibition, Luis Fierro, Ambassador Gordon Sonland, former ambassador to the European Union, and Piotr Swinski, the director of the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum. Let's listen.
3: I'm really excited and so, so happy to be here this evening. Uh, And I'll begin by saying what I would normally say around this time, I'm Wolf Blitzer and you're in the Situation Room. And people always ask me, why do you call it the Situation Room? And I always give the correct answer because whatever room I'm in, there's a situation. And there is a situation going on in this room tonight as well, and it's a very excellent situation. I'm so proud to be here. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Library has always been a very, very special place, especially for those of us who covered President Reagan. And and, and as you can see, this is a really amazing library, an amazing institution, and I'm so grateful that they have decided that they want to do this uh, exhibition on Auschwitz this evening and over the next several days. Let me thank thank John, let me thank the library, let me thank everyone who has been involved uh, in making this night possible. You're doing the world, and I must say this, a great service by welcoming and elevating this extraordinary exhibition. This world-renowned exhibition, which we have come here to commemorate, is of unmatched power an immeasurable consequence, and it feels very, very personal to me. Uh, I always knew, for example, that my grandparents had died during the Holocaust, but it wasn't until about eight years or so ago that I learned for certain, while visiting Yad Vashem, the Israeli Holocaust Memorial Museum in Jerusalem, that I learned that my paternal grandparents, my dad's mom and dad, were both killed at Auschwitz. My dad left a personal history uh, at Yad Vashem. He did that not only at Yad Vashem, the Israeli Holocaust Memorial Museum, but he did it uh, at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, audio history, it's on tape. Uh, He did it at Yad Vashem. Uh, But I only learned in recent months, in, in doing research for a documentary I did on CNN on the history of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, that I only learned then that my dad had also left a videotaped history of his personal experiences during the Holocaust. My dad left that personal history, and I got the tape of that interview, and it was so, so powerful. And if you saw my documentary, it will re-air, if you saw my documentary on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, you'll see clips of my dad speaking out about what he remembered what he saw, what he experienced. And it's a powerful, powerful story. And at the end of the story, at the end of his testimony, of his personal experience, he was asked, what was your biggest surprise of what happened during the Holocaust? And the answer that my dad gave was so, so meaningful and so, so powerful to me. He said, and my mom and dad were both Polish Jews, uh, he said, those of us Polish Jews, and others throughout Europe, we always looked up to the Germans as the elite in Europe. The, the Germans were the best in the culture, in the history, in art, in science, in literature. And once the, the Holocaust began, we were all stunned that the Germans were doing this because we always admired them for their, for their history, for their art, for their science, for their music, How was this possible that a society like that would begin doing these atrocities? And and that stuck out in my dad's mind and it sticks out in my mind as well. My mom and dad were both sent to slave labor camps, concentration camps. Their parents, all four of my grandparents, were murdered during the course of the Holocaust. Uh, After they survived, and they were young, they were strong, Uh, and they managed to survive. My dad was born in 1920, so he was what, only 19 or 20 years old when the war started. My mom was born in 1922, so she was young. They survived. uh, After the war, after they were liberated, and my dad remembers uh, he was liberated at Bergen-Belsen by the French who came in there, and he remembers hearing people speaking French. He didn't understand what was going on, but he ran out and he saw these French soldiers And he immediately said, viva la France, viva la France. And they responded in French as if he could speak French, he couldn't. But it was always so powerful to him to know that these French troops had come and managed to liberate this camp. My mom was at a camp called Skarzytsku in Poland. uh, And she was liberated together with her younger sister and two brothers by Russian troops who came in. So it, it was really meaningful. But what did they do immediately after they were liberated, and they survived the Holocaust. They did what all the survivors immediately did. They began to travel around to see uh, who survived. I mean, there's no internet or anything, no lists. And they would go around and they would try to find out, did my mom and dad survive, did my grandparents survive, uncles, aunts, cousins, brothers, sisters. They met on a train as they were traveling. A young woman, my mom, and a young man, my dad, They were searching for surviving relatives Uh, and what happened was they quickly fell in love, Uh, immediately fell in love. They had a lot in common, obviously, and as my mom and dad always said to me, in those days immediately after the war, you fall in love, you get married, because we didn't know what was going to happen a week from now or two weeks from now. You fall in love with somebody, you get married, and they were uh, in a place called Augsburg, Germany which was the U.S. controlled section of Bavaria in southern Germany uh, and they needed a rabbi to marry them. And they found a rabbi, there was one rabbi they found, who was a U.S. Army chaplain serving there and he married them. They got married and lo and behold, my older sister was born within a year after that and I was born shortly thereafter as well. And my dad always thought it was a miracle. A, that they survived, but B, that they found uh, a loving partner and that they had children so quickly. Uh, And uh, it was really an emotional time. They survived the war, and uh, they eventually wound up in a beautiful place that I like to call Buffalo, New York. So you you may want to ask me the question, how did they wind up in Buffalo, New York, these Polish Jews who survived the war, who were then living in Augsburg, Germany? My dad was trying to make a living, and they wound up in Buffalo, New York. And I'll tell you how they wound up in Buffalo, New York, if you're interested. Are you interested? Am I giving you too much information? I'll tell you how they wound up in beautiful Buffalo. One day, my dad went left Augsburg, and he went to Munich, which is not far away, and he sees a long line of people waiting in line, a long line. And as he always said, in those days, You see a long line, you go wait in line. There must be something good at the end of the line. Otherwise, why are all these people waiting in line? So he goes, immediately goes to the end of the line. And after a half an hour, he says to the woman in front of him, he says, Fräulein, by the way, why are we waiting in line? And she says, you don't know? And I said, my dad said, no, I don't know. Uh, She says, visas. My dad said, visas for what? America. My dad said, visas for America. What he didn't know then, which uh, he he later learned, was the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate had just passed what was called the Displaced Persons Act of 1948, which granted 400,000 visas to displaced persons, including Holocaust survivors, of course. My dad gets to the front of the line, Uh, and uh, he signs himself, my mom. My mom had two brothers who survived, a younger sister who survived. My dad only had one younger sister who survived. Four brothers and sisters were killed. Parents obviously were killed, grandparents. He signs everybody up, uh, and within a few weeks, they're all notified that they've been approved to get visas, immigration visas, to come to the United States. But the condition was that they would tell you where you were going. And so my dad gets this letter saying, you've been approved, you get a visa to come to the United States, uh, and you're going to Buffalo. And so my dad said, Buffalo, where's that? And a friend said, oh, Buffalo, it's in New York. And my dad said, oh, New York, a lot of Jewish people in New York, it'll be good. He didn't know Buffalo was 400 miles from New York City. Uh, so, uh, but eventually, they get uh, the immigration visas, and they take a boat that lands in Boston And then uh, the highest, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the Joint Distribution Committee, helps them take a train from Boston to Buffalo. They arrive in Buffalo, uh, and uh, the local Jewish community, but also the general community was very receptive and helped them and develop a new life. My dad got a job first at Bethlehem Steel outside of Buffalo in Lackawanna, New York. He hated that. And then he and my uncle Sam Friedman they opened up a deli in Buffalo. My dad didn't like that either. And eventually he became, uh, at the advice of his two friends in New Jersey, who also had waited in line and got visas to go to Elizabeth, New Jersey. They became home builders and they were doing really well. And they said to my dad, Dave, you should become a home builder. They need housing here. All these soldiers are coming back, buy some land. My dad had a little money he had made and start building homes. And my dad said, I don't know anything about building homes. and these brothers said to him, Dave, don't worry. You're a smart guy. You'll learn how to do it. Just start buying some land and build some homes. Uh, And so my dad started building homes, and he eventually became one of the most successful home builders in western New York. Uh, And he was so grateful to this country for giving him and his family a second chance to start a new life. Uh, And he was always so proud. Uh, As I always said growing up, Our family probably, my mom and dad were the most patriotic Americans I ever met because of the opportunity that this country gave them to start a new life, especially after what they had gone through during the Holocaust. We had had an American flag flying outside of our house, not just on the Fourth of July, but all year round. My dad was so so proud of being an American and this, this opportunity that he got. As a result of my experience growing up, hearing their stories, uh, this is very personal for me and why uh, it's been so important to me to learn about the Holocaust and to speak out about the Holocaust, which is so, so important, especially at a time like this, when we sadly see increased anti-Semitism, not only in the U.S., but around the world, and we see increased Holocaust denial, which is going on, hard to believe, but uh, there are crazy people out there who say these Jews, they just made up the six million, it never happened. I owe it to the memory of my grandparents and all the others who died to use my little platform to help out, to speak out, to raise my voice, to remind the world that Auschwitz truly, truly is not long ago, not far away. And thank you once again to this fabulous Ronald Reagan Library for using this evening to raise our voices. I often think of the words of uh, Elie Wiesel, and I'll quote now. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference, and the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference, Elie Wiesel. No matter how close or how removed we may all feel to the events of the Holocaust, we certainly cannot afford to become indifferent. It's true that we have long since buried the regime that perpetrated these atrocities, but having reported on events here at home, including here in the United States, brutal events, horrible events, whether we heard the chanting Jews will not replace us at Charlottesville, or the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, or even January 6th and the insurrection, the power struggles that are going on overseas. Hatred clearly still lingers out there. We cannot ignore it. We must remember, we must remember what, what has happened in the past and what needs to be done now to fight this. And as I said, anti-Semitism is still very much alive out there. And in this country, and indeed in every con- continent, there are e- even the people who say the entire concept of the Jewish people is a lie. It is a fact that many of the conditions that made the Holocaust possible, sadly, still exist. And knowing that fact, my judgment is that the work you are doing by teaching successive generations about what happened specifically in Auschwitz and this exhibition, and I took the complete tour just a little while ago is really, really essential. If you haven't done the tour, you must go see it. It really is powerful. I remember very, very, very vividly uh, as I was growing up, my mom and dad would always speak about their experiences. They never hid the fact that they were Holocaust survivors, that their parents were murdered during the Holocaust. They were open in teaching my older sister and me what had happened. And one of the things that I remember my dad telling me, and it's very evident in the exhibition. If you haven't seen it, you'll see it there. Almost every town and village in Poland, specifically, my parents were Polish Jews, almost every town and village in Poland had three names. They had the Polish name, they had a German name, but they also had a Yiddish name. And my dad would tell me Auschwitz. We all know Auschwitz. That's the German name, but there was a little town there outside of the death camp, Auschwitz. The Polish name, Hoshwenshin, the Yiddish name, which I grew up hearing from my dad talk about his history, his experiences, was Auschwitzin. That was the Yiddish name, and almost every town, my mother's town, had three names, because there were th- more than three million Jews in Poland before World War II, more than three million Jews. Uh, I-, I think there's a few thousand left today in Poland. And I was just in Poland in Warsaw recently uh, with President Biden. Uh, and uh, it was just a, it's a heartbreaking thing to think about that, uh, that what had happened during the war. So teaching all of these lessons to future generations is so, so essential. I'm really proud that what we're learning here in the United States is going on and is so important and so intense. I know it can feel odd to juxtapose a wonderful event like tonight's in this really distinguished institution with a subject that is so heavy, so profound, so complex, and so ugly. But I believe it's possible to celebrate the present while really honoring the past. It's possible and right to celebrate good works and important missions even as we are mindful of the reality that makes that work necessary. History, indeed, like the news, is not to be kept in a neat little box. It's to be viewed and then set aside out of sight and out of mind. We don't want to do that. We want to learn from history. Why? So we don't repeat those brutal mistakes and blunders and horrible conditions of the past. It is so, so important. One man who has made it his life's mission to work and to remember and to learn and to teach is my old friend from Washington, Dr. Michael Berenbaum, the curator of the Auschwitz exhibition. Sadly, he just was in Poland. He was supposed to be here tonight. Oh, he's here tonight. Let's give Michael Berenbaum a big round of applause. Michael, sit there for a second. They told me as I was walking up, his flight from Poland is delayed, he's not gonna get here until much later. But he's here, which is really, really important. From 1988 to 1993, he served as the project director of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, overseeing its creation. And I have to tell you, that museum, if you've seen my documentary, it is so important because so many millions of people who come through Washington go and visit it and they learn and they see and they get a sense of what happened to six million Jews. From 1997 to 1999, he was president and CEO of what is now known as the Shoah Foundation, which is devoted to filming and cataloging testimonies by Hol- Ho- Holocaust survivors. The Shoah Foundation, Steven Spielberg, very much uh, you know, directly responsible for creating the Shoah Foundation. And I will tell you this, one of the proudest moments I had after my documentary aired on CNN was I got a call from the head of Warner Brothers Discovery, which is CNN's parent company, David Zasloff. And he said, Wolf, you had a great documentary. I'm very proud of you. I just got a call from Steven Spielberg. He asked me if I would give him your cell phone number. He wants to thank you and he wants to talk to you. And I said, sure, give Steven Spielberg my cell phone number. Uh, and within literally a few minutes I get a call from Steven Spielberg. They have a kid from Buffalo. I get a call from Steven Spielberg, and he was so, so emotional. He was so moved by my documentary, especially by hearing the clips from my dad, from his testimony. He wanted to thank me for that, and it was just a, a really moving moment for me that I'll always, of course, remember. I also want to bring in as we continue this. Michael Berenbaum, stand by, because you're gonna lead us in a special prayer. And, and maybe you know it's a good idea to do that special prayer right now. Because as my dad used to say as a little boy growing up in Buffalo, when he would make me go to synagogue services, he would always say, and I wanted to go play baseball with my friends, he would always say, remember son, prayer is very important. It might not help, but can't hurt. So let's welcome Dr. Michael Berenbaum.
0: I come uh, from Auschwitz, having taken uh, Attorney Generals of individual states through Auschwitz for a seminar on anti-Semitism. Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away. The scandal of this exhibition is the scandal of the world in which we live, in which we're not able to put Auschwitz far away long ago, because we live in a world in which the echoes of Auschwitz are heard often, too often, and the indifference that surrounds them is also heard. I've been introduced as the co-curator. I want to pay particular tribute for one moment to my colleague Robert Jan van Pelt, whose genius you will see throughout. Robert wrote a dissertation on the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, architectural historian. He was asked by a professor, and we try to trip up students at our dissertation, at their dissertation asked by a professor, what's the holiest site in the world today? And unbeknownst, he doesn't know why, he answered Auschwitz, which is the sacred anti-sacred, the holy anti-holy, the epitome of evil itself. And that becomes a very important element to understand. And what we have now, thanks to the people at Auschwitz and also to the people of Muzilla, we have the unique opportunity not only to go to Auschwitz, but to bring Auschwitz to the people in communities and areas that have not, have not been there. Why the Reagan Library? And I think the most profound answer is the Holocaust was an act of government not only of one government, but of multi-governments that were either collaborationist or allied of the murder. It occurred over 23 different countries using using all of the instrumentalities of government to perpetrate evil. Why? Because it it was an evil unrestrained by basic concepts that are central to the United States of America restraint on the exercise of power, checks and balances, inalienable rights, and the most profound of all American concepts that we have not yet lived up to, which is that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. The United States at its best and we are not at our best. The United States at its best should become counter-testimony to the power of government to create evil. It should be the testimony, the power of government to sanctify human dignity rather than to desecrate human dignity. and to treat all of humanity with a certain basic concept of equal and equal justice, something that we saw violated and you'll see violated in all of the elements of the exhibition that you're about to see. It was my privilege to work on this exhibition and now it's my privilege to bless the bread of which we eat with the traditional Jewish blessing Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu melech Min Ha'aretz Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, Sovereign of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Amen. To create an exhibition like this powerful one
3: and to take it on the road requires the support of a host of visionary, generous, and really committed individuals. One of those individuals is Ambassador Gordon Sutherland, the presiding underwriter here at the Reagan Library. He recognized immediately the importance of bringing the exhibition to California and to more Americans. And he saw the importance of this through two lenses. First, as the son of parents who were able to flee the Holocaust, he knows how close they actually came. The second, as a US diplomat, As the former U.S. ambassador to the European Union, he understands that the U.S.-EU partnership is essential to a world in which freedom prevails over tyranny, and building that future requires knowing our history. Especially now when we see what's going on in Ukraine with this Russian invasion and the brutality. Just the other day, yesterday, once again, the Russians launched bombs at residential apartment buildings in Ukraine. They've done it against hospitals and schools. These are war crimes that are going on. And Ambassador Gordon Sundland fully understands what's going on and the importance of the US and the European Union working together to deal with these crises. So ladies and gentlemen, the 20th US ambassador to the European Union. Let's give him a big round of applause. Thank you for his service.
4: Gordon Sundland.: Wolf, uh, thank you for the kind words and I'd also like to thank John Highbush and the entire team here at the Reagan Library. I've been coming to the library for decades and I've never been to an event here that has not been stellar, so we can can add one more to the list. Uh, While he's going to be recognized later, I wanna thank in particular my good friend and colleague, Ambassador Stavros Lambrinidis, who will be speaking to you shortly Stavros was my counterpart. He was the EU ambassador to the U.S. and is based in Washington, D.C. And I could not have asked for a better counterpart with, with whom to work. So Stavros, thank you so much for being here. You know, I'm very grateful to have been asked to underwrite the exhibition. It was not a tough choice. It was an honor and I'm humbled to be here tonight to honor history and my late parents. Gunther and Frieda Sondland were survivors. They were among the lucky ones. They didn't talk a lot about how they fled Germany to escape the Holocaust, but they spoke often about how thankful they were to live in America. As huge fans of President Reagan, I know they would have been deeply moved by the way we are remembering the past, especially especially at a time when anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial are on the rise. The French writer Voltaire said, anyone who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Today there are prominent people who would like us to believe the dangerous absurdity, the lie, that the Holocaust did not happen or was exaggerated. I firmly believe that, ex- that the freedom of expression is a hallmark of our nation. Denying facts for political purposes will take us down a very dark road. There is no patriotism in the current plague of very prominent people, and you know who I'm talking about, who decry evidence-based truth because it's politically expedient. False news travels fast, and people who listen, triggered by the words of someone they admire, could be driven to take actions that are deeply out of character. They could even participate in the unthinkable. I believe that this exhibition is nothing short of urgent. In my lifetime, I have never seen anti-Semitism at its current level. In the last six years, the number of anti-Semitic acts has tripled, and the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, rightly called it a state of emergency, and that was not an overstatement. While the words and actions of Politicians and celebrities make headlines. Most acts are carried out by regular people who develop exclusionary views. Genocide Watch defines the first stage of genocide as classification. And the way this works is they stereotype us versus them. There's something that feels commonplace about this, maybe even harmless to some. But genocides all over the world begin this way. Scholars emphasize that genocide is a process, not an event. And oftentimes the first spark is the spread of lies about a group of people. In 1930, Hitler used the German Jews as scapegoats, blaming them for everything, for the economic and political failures of the Weimar Republic. Hitler's lies and propaganda led to mass genocide. A word that we must remember when talking about the Holocaust is the word normal. To organize the killing of six million Jews, it was not just leaders greasing the machinery of war, but the people believing their lies, normal, ordinary people. They were doctors and teachers, factory workers, and business owners. They were people whom, if you had told 10 years prior that they would be overseeing the systematic execution of millions of their fellow citizens, even aiding it, they would have never believed you. Genocides go through a long evolution of hate, and any group can become a target, even here in America. How then do we stay true to the promise of never again? I'll tell you. We educate. We learn from the past. The importance of this cannot be emphasized enough, for knowledge of the Holocaust is diminishing in every generation. In a recent poll, two-thirds of US millennials did not know what Auschwitz was or is. In 1988, President Reagan laid the cornerstone of what is now the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and said, I think all of us here are aware of those, even among our own countrymen, who have dedicated themselves to the disgusting task of minimizing or even denying the truth of the Holocaust. This act of genocide must not go unchallenged and those who advance these views must be held up to the scorn and wrath of all good and thinking people in this nation and across the world. Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot have an exhibit like this one a hundred years from now about yet another dark moment in time when the worst of humanity prevailed. It is up to us to keep history from repeating itself. We must be the good and thinking people. Thank you for joining us this evening as we remember the victims and live the promise to never forget. Your presence here speaks volumes. Thank you.
3: Like Ambassador Sondland, our next speaker knows better than most how essential the American-European partnership is to securing a future rooted in shared values of democracy and respect of human rights. He also knows better than most how easily those values are threatened. They must be defended every day on multiple fronts. And one of those fronts, as I said before, of course, today, is of course what's going on in Ukraine. A a horrible, horrible war right in the heart of Europe. Ambassador Stavros, Lambrin has been the ambassador of the European Union to the United States since since March of 2019. From 2012 to 2019, he served as the EU Special Representative for Human Rights. In 2011, he was the Foreign Affairs Minister of Greece, a country all of us, of course, love. And he has served as a member of the European Parliament. We are honored to have him with us this evening. To, uh, and we are certainly honored that he will share some history and reaffirm for all of us the importance of the transatlantic alliance. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome His Excellency, Ambassador Stavros Lambrindinis.
1: Uh, I am truly honored to be here today at the Reagan Presidential Library uh, for the West Coast premiere of the exhibit Auschwitz not long ago, not far away. As a European, this to me, it is guttural. It is existential. The European Union was born out of the ashes of the Second World War. That's when the EU was first created. After a war where Europeans, in our own hands, murdered millions of other Europeans. And where Europeans committed the biggest human rights violation in recent history, the Holocaust. And when we got together to build the European Union, it was not because of money. It was because we were committed to create institutions that would never allow us either the desire or the capacity to perpetrate such atrocities against ourselves or anywhere in the world ever again. And in the past 75 years, we have built the biggest, most peaceful, most prosperous area in the world. But peace in Europe cannot be taken for granted. And many thanks to Mr. Putin for reminding us about this with his brutal war in Ukraine. President Reagan, famously told Gorbachev, Mr. President, tear down this wall. And there was probably one person back in the Soviet Union who heard these words and was committed never to allow that to happen, and that was a young Putin who considered the end of the Soviet Union an affront to his image of oppression, expansionism, denial of other people's rights to free determination. And then Putin became president, and he used that hatred in order to be able to re-erect that wall by killing Ukrainians and hating them for who they are. He wants them extinguished. And you know what is hair-raising? Is that he has the gall to claim that he's doing this in order to denazify Ukraine with its Jewish president, by the by. What an insult to the memory of the Holocaust and the victims of it. My best friend in law school here in the United States, Gennady, is a Ukrainian Jew. His family escaped the Soviet Union to escape the repression of those times. And he's, of course, devastated by what's happening in Ukraine. But one thing he keeps repeating to me is Stavros, he says, keep in mind, we will never forget that the Nazis bombed Kiev the first time they did it. It was four in the morning in 1941. And Putin bombed Kiev at 430 in the morning in 2022, maybe that coincidence between Hitler and Putin escaped Mr. Putin, it has not escaped my friend, it has not escaped the Ukrainians, and it should not escape us either. Dear friends, Gordon said it brilliantly, Gordon, my dear friend, who I honor here today because of his generosity, making this exhibit happen. Thank you, Gordon, and thank you for your friendship. I know sometimes this war in Ukraine appears to be thousands of miles away. For people sitting here, I visited with some diplomats of European Union member states here in Los Angeles this morning, and they told me, boy, foreign policy, that's not a big topic of discussion in Los Angeles. The other things that they talk about is not like Washington, D.C. And I say, really? I'll tell you what, it may appear to be thousands of miles away, but there is absolutely no safe distance when an autocrat sitting on nuclear weapons is convinced that he can bend the will of our leaders in the United States and Europe to his own by force. That he can make it acceptable again to be able to use force instead of law to extinguish people you hate from the face of the world. If that were to happen, if he were to win, no one is safe. And if no one cares about anything else, I'll tell you something, as a European who did build that European Union on the basis of human rights, when I see thousands of children from Ukraine, being abducted, taken away, transferred to Russia, to be brainwashed. If you don't care about politics, you you care about this. Everyone cares about this. It is outrageous. It is the kind of war crime that the International Criminal Court just determined deserves to bring Mr. Putin to justice. And I hope that this happens. But as I say this, let me just say that the hatred of the Holocaust and the poison of anti-Semitism as we look at the puddings of the world is, and I agree with Gordon, still in our societies as well. And we owe it as American and Europeans to fight every day to extinguish that scourge. It is in our places of worship. We find it in our streets. We see it every day in our communities. Too often it is in the speeches of some politicians in our workplaces. I can tell you as the European Union Ambassador that we, Europeans, want to be better. We want Europe to be a place where there is no place for anti-Semitism, and we are committed to that. We have made, we have made research, education, and Holocaust remembrance and central pillar of our strategy on combating antisemitism and fostering Jewish life. We are creating and preserving physical networks and places where the Holocaust happened and building social networks like the young European ambassadors to promote remembrance. We are not resting until the scourge is gone because we will never forget the six million Jewish men, women and children and all others murdered in the Holocaust in European hands, and others saved by European hands, I have to say, and something that touched me particularly as a Greek here in this exhibit tonight was walking by four photographs taken by a Jewish Greek, Alberto Herrera. He went in the resistance. He was dragged to Auschwitz, and he had a camera. He found one and he took photos, evidence, real evidence of these atrocities for all those deniers out there, not that many of them, frankly, but they are, who claim that this didn't really happen. He was caught, he was tortured, and he was killed in Auschwitz. And then he was paraded around for people to know what to avoid. But that kind of atrocity will not be forgotten in Europe. More than one million of those perished did so at the Auschwitz extermination camp, which is perhaps the single most powerful symbol of the genocide. So, dear friends, in closing, this exhibition, opening today at the Reagan Library, helps to keep the memory alive. And by confronting us with the most disastrous consequences of antisemitism from the past, it also helps us and our younger generations be better prepared to fight it in the future. Everyone quoted someone. I'll quote Nelson Mandela. And this is just, just a quote that is, is, has touched me the, the moment I read it. He said, no one is born hating. People learn how to hate. You take a black baby and a white baby and you put them next to each other, they're curious. They touch each other, they don't hate each other. You're not, you're not born hating you learn how to hate. And if you can learn how to hate, you can learn how to love. And I hope that this exhibit here at the Reagan Library, if it achieves anything, anything it's going to be to help us and those visiting it learn how to love a little more. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Ambassador, it was really, really so moving, so powerful what we heard from you. All right, here's another fact, and that's what we do, we report the facts. Here's another fact. It's been nearly 14 years since Luis Ferrero first conceived of the Aus- Auschwitz exhibition. He now serves as its director, in addition to being the CEO of Musealia, the Spanish firm that designs and manages powerful exhibitions from ideation to installation. His projects, which are housed in cultural venues worldwide, have been visited by millions and millions of people. In June of 2021, the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum presented Luis with the Light of Remembrance, the Light of Remembrance Award, its highest recognition for his outstanding contribution to the education about Auschwitz and the Holocaust and it is such a clearly well-deserved recognition. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a very, very warm welcome to a visionary whose work has inspired the world, Luis Ferrero. Ladies and gentlemen, Luis, come on up.
5: Thank you all very much. Um, I cannot really start my, my brief words just without showing my sincere and profound recognition and uh, affection to all the people, institutions, and individuals that made possible the exhibition existence in first place and its arrival here to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. In first place, the auschwitz Brickenau State Museum for their trust, for their work, for their collaboration in all the different departments and for the vision, as Michael was saying, to take the story of Auschwitz in an exhibition to the world, and especially I want to mention Dr. Piotr Zewinski for its vision and leadership of the museum and of this project. And of course, also to all of our other loan givers uh, and more than 20 different institutions worldwide that are helping us with the authenticity of their, of their artifacts. Very especially also to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library uh, Museum, the story of how this exhibition came to be here has been already explained, but it has been an absolute pleasure and honor to work with them, all their teams, to make the exhibition come true. Um, and of course, to all the people and sponsors that donated in order to make the exhibition possible. Um, very especially also to World Heritage Exhibitions, our partners who are helping us bring in the exhibition to the United States without their uh, help and providing all the resources, human technical resources, it would have not been possible. And of course, to all the Musealia team especially, I need to start by uh, acknowledging the curatorial team represented here by Dr. Uh, Robert-Jan Van Pelt, chief curator and friend. and Dr. Michael Brenbaum, And of course, not here with us, but also Miriam Greenbaum, Paul Salmon, Sanjay Malsiniti, who made all the knowledge to uh, be able to create the the exhibition. As I was saying, uh, uh, Musealia is based in in Spain, in uh, the Atlantic coast, touching the border with with France. Um, For those who not know, it's quite rainy, windy, uh, even cold place, and uh, our collections manager and myself, are Anna Galan, who, who is here, we are finding very difficult our colleagues back in the office to, to believe us when we tell them that in the last week that we have been here, we have actually found rain, wind, and, uh, uh, and cold. Um, it seems like, aside from an exhibition, we also brought the rain to California. So. Uh, I hope that's appreciated. Um, one of the things that in this week that I have been here, one of the things that I have been constantly asked is actually, what do we expect the visitors to take out of the, of the exhibition? And it's, uh, of course, it could be a very simple question to answer, but at the same time, it's a very complex one. And it has, I have been reflecting a lot about this the, the past days. Um, You're going to visit the exhibition in a few minutes, and you will see actually that we start with a quote from Pimo Levi. You will see that we finish with a quote from from Delbo. Um, And for us, I think that the most important thing is somehow, in a way, how the exhibition started also. Uh, As many of you know, um, it was by reading a book from an Auschwitz survivor, Viktor Frankl, Man in Search of Meaning. And when I read this book, I immediately had this, moral imperative to basically do something Um, and I think that this is at the very core of what we do in this exhibition. We show what happened but we also we present the facts, we show the artifacts, we explain the story but we also give agency to the visitor, visitor to understand that we all have unfortunately every day in our world from dawn to sunset the opportunity to do something. And it doesn't have to be necessarily a large exhibition or be both in a museum or be an important journalist or politician. Every one of us, in its own level, can do something. Um, there is no such a thing as small deeds and we all have this opportunity to make small steps to create, not a better future, but to shape a better present. Nobody can change the, the past but we can certainly make a difference in our, in our own present. Uh, I want to finish just by quoting, by quoting a survivor, Primo Levi, introduced um, by me in its less known works by Robert-Jan Van Pelt, um, which actually captures this notion of knowledge, moral imperative, and of acting and doing something. He said, there is no rationality in the Nazi hatred. It is hate that is not in us. It is outside of man. We, can, we cannot understand it, but we must understand where it springs, and we must be on guard. If understanding is impossible, knowing is imperative, because what happened could happen again. Thank you very much.
2: More from our opening evening program for our Auschwitz exhibition after this message.
6: The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give.
2: Now back to our opening evening program for our Auschwitz exhibition.
3: As many as two two million people are able to visit Auschwitz each year. Two million people a year. But so many people, of course, cannot make that journey. Which is why bringing that history, these artifacts, these stories, to other continents really does matter. It is urgently needed. It is so timely and important right now. This exhibition that we're now having here at the Reagan Presidential Library, for the first time brings original objects from the camp, the death camp, to new audiences outside of Poland. It is so, so important. It meets people, this exhibition, where they are. And this would not be possible without the partnership of the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum and its director, the highly regarded author and historian, Dr. Piotr Savinsky, who is with us tonight. Let's give him a big round of applause right now. A few years ago, he wrote about the philosophy he brings to his role, and I'm quoting him now. I am not that interested in why people come here, whether they're on a school trip or a tourist visit. I'm not that interested in their attitudes or their backgrounds. It is not what the person arriving here thinks that is crucial to me, but what that person takes away when they leave. Really important words. I imagine that the Reagan Library sees it exactly the same way. Maybe people will discover Auschwitz after coming here to learn about President Reagan, or maybe it will be the reverse. But either way, they will be able to take with them a piece of truth, a piece of history, that they may not necessarily have previously possessed. And that is certainly a cause worth supporting. I visited the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum close to a decade ago after I learned that the Nazis had killed my paternal grandparents there. It, It was an experience that cannot be put into words. But as overpowering as it is, I am left amid all the emotions with a clear sense of gratitude. So on that note, and it's a very personal note, Dr. Savinsky, thank you so much for helping me to understand my family's history. More importantly, thank you for helping millions of people better understand the world's history. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Piotr Savinsky, let's give him a huge,
7: Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, dear friends. We are approaching the 80th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. It will be in January 2025. It's quite close. Probably it will be one of the really last round anniversary with still a group of survivors. And we are living still in a world that is our world where the rhetoric of uh, anti-semitism and other ideologies of hatred, racism, xenophobia, different sort of populism and demagogy, is once again intensifying. Therefore, we must constantly remind ourselves of the evil that is possible when societies allow such hatred. And this exhibition we are opening today has a special, I think, meaning, as it not only, as I hope, commemorate the past. Yes, I hope that all the people that will go through this exhibition will be a little bit different after. I don't want miracles, I just, Ask to be a little bit different. I ask to, I hope that those people will have some, some moral anxiety in them, that they will be able to reflect about the indifference of our world, about uh, our own indifference, about my indifference also. Russia's barbaric invasion of sovereignly Ukraine clearly show how much the world needs historical remembrance to be a lasting and clear warning. And Auschwitz was a far too painful experience so the free world today could tolerate any symptoms of a policy of hatred, aggression or dehumanization. Our world know very well that Auschwitz and the Holocaust is a referring point for the future. And the remembrance must be the key to building a peaceful and just world. If not, I don't see what is the goal of the remembrance. It's not only about emotions, it's about decisions. Each of us could be somewhere else on this beautiful evening, but all of us decided to be here in this core experience of the remembrance of the Shoah. I would like to thank all of you for being here. This is the sense of our work. Thank you.
3: In addition to everything else we have with us tonight, and this is really a blessing, some Holocaust survivors who are actually here. And if any of them would like to stand up, we'd like to thank them for being here uh, and just being eyewitnesses to history. I've been very active over the years in supporting the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, and every year we have a major dinner. And over all of these years, and it's, it's so painful and so memorable, Uh, for me personally, I've been going to these dinners every year. 20 years ago we would have a dinner in Washington uh, honoring the US Holocaust Memorial Museum and we would ask the Holocaust survivors to stand and we would give them a very warm reception. And uh, 20 years ago several hundred would stand because they were all there. In recent years, sadly, when we asked the Holocaust survivors at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum to stand, you know, maybe five or six stand up because uh, it's, it's tough to see what's going on. And we need these eyewitnesses to tell their stories, especially at a time like this. We have breaking news, major breaking news. We have a special guest that I would like to invite up to the stage right now to share a few thoughts. Ladies and gentlemen, he needs no introduction. Let's welcome him right now, Jay Leno.
8: Thank you, Gordon. Gordon makes it his life's work to try and find the most inappropriate audience for a comedian. So, Thank you. This is another impossible one. People ask me, I'm not Jewish, I'm a Gentile, which is a word I'm not comfortable with, you know, it's just so goyish, you know what I mean? I don't really, <laughs> don't really like it. Uh, it's great to be at the... Re- president Reagan was the first president I ever performed for. I was a nervous wreck. I was standing backstage at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And a general came back, and he had all the pins and medals, and he goes, hey, hey, are you, what's your name? What's your name? My name is Jay Leno. You're the comedian? Let me tell you something. That is my president, you understand? That is my commander-in-chief. You don't joke about him. You don't denigrate him. You don't make fun of him. You understand? And he's doing this. You understand? I said, yeah, yeah, good. And he leaves. I go, oh, man, what am I going to do? And then about 10 minutes later, George Schultz walks in. He's had a drink in each hand. I, want, I don't want to say he's drunk out of his mind, but he was drunk out of his mind. <laughs> and he goes, Leno, when you get out there, nail Ronnie's ass to the wall. <laughs> and I said, Well, uh, that general, asked, screw him, he works for me. I'm sick of there. He works for me. Yeah, don't, and make fun of that black thing on Reagan's head. You think that's his hair? You think it's his real hair? And I said, Well, I, I don't know. OK, now what do I do? I'm t- stuck between a rock and a hard place. I remember my opening joke was a little rough, but I thought I'd do it anyway. I said, I want to congratulate First Lady Nancy Reagan on winning the Humanitarian of the Year Award. I'm so glad she beat out out that conniving little tramp, Mother Teresa. Okay. (laughs) And according to my, I see Reagan fall off the chair. I go, okay. Okay, I'm in good shape. I got to have dinner with him. He said, Jay, you like motorcycles, is that right? Jay, I had an Indian motorcycle. We talked about motorcycles and stuff. And then he said to me, Jay, were you a good student? You a good? I said, no, Mr. President, I'm dyslexic. So I was actually a, a terrible student. I was a good student. Me neither, Jay. I was not a good student. And every day I kicked myself thinking how far I could have gone if I just applied myself. <laughs> and I thought that was the greatest joke I ever heard. But I tell you, I just went through that uh, exhibit. It is unbelievable. If you have children, grandchildren, please make them go to this, because that's if you know anybody under 40, make them go to this, because it is truly an eye-opening experience. You know, there's something I've watched a dozen times. Whenever I'm feeling sorry for myself or thinking, "Oh, uh, uh, whatever," you know, I didn't get this, I didn't get that. There's a man I want you to Google. You probably know his name. His name is Sir Nicholas George Winton. I I, I choke up every time I say this. He was born in 1909. He lived to be 106. He was just a regular man. He was an accountant, not even a great accountant, just a mid-level accountant. He had no connections, but he saved 600 Jewish children, and he did it by himself. He was just an ordinary man. After the war, he got married. His wife never knew what he did. His children never knew what he did. And when you Google his name, you'll see him, he comes on a TV show, and unbeknownst to him, he's sitting in an audience of, I don't know, 800 people at a theater. He's in the front row, and a man walks out with a book and says, "Uh, uh, Mr. Winton, this is your life, blah, 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 and they tell a story. And uh, this gets me every time. At the end, they say, is there anyone in this audience who was saved by Mr. Winton and the whole audience? stands up. Everybody in that audience, doctors, lawyers, uh, accountants. I mean, just everybody from every walk of life, children, grandchildren, to watch these people thank him. He didn't know these kids names. He didn't really keep track. He just saved as many as he could and his biggest regret in life that he he couldn't say more. He was knighted at age 100. As I said, he lived to be 106. And you talk about a life well led. I mean, that typical British understatement. He He didn't even tell his wife. His wife's going, what? What are you? You know, usually when that happens, the guy has done something awful, you know but he was a guy, he just thought it was no big deal. He just thought he's an ordinary person who should save ordinary people. And when you see this, you watch it tonight when you go home. After you see this exhibit, if you feel a little down and you feel a little blue, just watch it, just see that whole audience, the love they give this man and the woman holding grandchildren, and the pictures of their parents who were killed, and, and he saved them. He got them all to England. He forged passports. He, he did it all by himself. It's just a fascinating story. So uh, it, when you get home tonight, it's Sir, Sir Nicholas George Winton, W-N-T-O-N. Um, he's my hero, and I think he'll be yours too. Thank you very much.
3: Almost 40 years ago, in April 1983, President Reagan addressed the American gathering of Jewish Holocaust survivors. Before we move upstairs to continue our evening, I want to share some of his powerful and very inspiring words. They provide a benediction of sorts, a charge to all of us who are here tonight. These are the words from our 40th President of the United States, that I'm quoting now. Tonight, let us pledge that we will never shut our eyes, never refuse to acknowledge the truth, no matter how unpleasant. If nothing else, the painful memory we share should strengthen our resolve to do this. And then he went on to say, and I'm quoting still, Our founding fathers believed in certain self-evident truths, but for truth to prevail, we must have the courage to proclaim it. That's a direct quote from President Reagan. To the Reagan Library trustees, to the staff, to the benefactors, the underwriters and the supporters, I believe you have clearly lived up to President Reagan's charge on this evening. You have had the courage to proclaim truth. Let us all pledge to do the same. And if we do, truth will indeed prevail. So so important. And let us all end this, this part of our program tonight before we head upstairs remembering the six million Jews who were massacred and murdered during the Holocaust. As we say in the Hebrew, zichronam livracha, may their memories be a blessing. And indeed, let us hope their memories are indeed a blessing. Thanks to all of you for joining us on this very meaningful evening, and we will continue to remember them, and we will continue to remember the lessons of the Holocaust. It is so timely, so important, and today more important, perhaps, than ever before as we enter this new era. Thank you once again. God bless all of you. Good night.
2: More information about Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away, can be found on our website at reaganlibrary.com slash Auschwitz. This exhibition sells out everywhere it goes, so we recommend pre-purchasing your tickets as early as possible. Again, that's reaganlibrary.com slash Auschwitz. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org slash events. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms.
1: Until next week, thanks for listening. God bless you.
6: Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast, featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.